0: from PRX. We have a favor to ask. One of our advertisers is conducting a survey, and we'd be grateful for your help answering a few of their questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes for your time, and your participation helps our show. You can go to SlateStudy.com right now to complete the short survey. Thanks. Today on Studio 360, how Maya Angelou turned memories of the brutal racism of her childhood into a gorgeous, important book. She identified
1: with that caged bird with this tremendous impulse
0: to fly, to be free of that cage. I know why the caged bird sings, the newest American icon. Plus, some of Liz Phair's best-known lyrics started as college kid thought she hadn't planned to share let alone sing for decades.
2: Be careful what you scribble in your journal because you might just have to be performing it at 52. You know, like, be careful what you do.
0: I talked to Liz Fair about her new book, 90s nostalgia, and that time everybody said she'd sold out. That's ahead on Studio 360 right after this. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson, Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This, this first level of gardening. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste.
3: Very well done.
4: Editing is all about timing.
3: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right?
0: Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. Given how ubiquitous memoirs are today, people actually get master's degrees in memoir writing. It's a little hard to fathom that just 50 years ago, an autobiography by a living African American woman was rare, verging on non-existent. But that changed in 1969. That's when Maya Angelou, age 40, kind of a late bloomer as an author, published her first book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. It was the first of seven autobiographies she published, and it became the first nonfiction book ever by a black woman to become a bestseller. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings is a coming-of-age story about the racism and sexual abuse and other outrages Angelou encountered growing up. It's acclaimed, beloved, and also regularly subject to bans by school libraries. For the latest installment of our American Icons series, producer Sonia Green looks at how Angelou's first book came to be and became so important to so many people. A listener note. The story contains a racial slur that is part of the book.
5: Thanks to the book that launched her writing career, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Maya Angelou is remembered as a writer of the highest order, but she lived nearly half her life before she wrote that book and had done just about everything to pay the bills. Here's the abbreviated version. At age 16, she was pregnant with her only son, Clyde Guy Johnson. To support him, she took on many jobs. She lied about her age to get a job as San Francisco's first black female streetcar conductor. Later, she worked as a prostitute and ran a brothel. Then in the 1950s, she's singing at a club in San Francisco when she meets some cast members in the award-winning opera by Gershwin, Poor Guy and Bess. They ask if she can dance, she says yes. She's offered a role and goes on a 22 nation tour around the world with the company. Back in the States in 1957, she records her album, Miss Calypso.
6: These Yankee girls are giving me a big scare. Black the roots, blonde the hair. The eyelash falls, faces paint, patches is where those girls they ain't. We Calypso girls, good a lot. What you see is what we got.
5: She also ends up writing for television, is a journalist, a playwright, and a poet. She becomes friends with writers like Rosa Guy and James Baldwin. She attends a speech of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr.'s in Harlem.
4: Organized politically and spiritually around the concept of the of man. She ends up
5: befriending Dr. King. And then on her 40th birthday.
0: Dr. Martin Luther King the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police rushed the 39-year-old
4: Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck.
5: She's devastated. It just, just knocked me out. That's Angela from the 2016 documentary, And Still I Rise. Her grief makes her relapse into a condition from her childhood, voluntary mutism. And I
6: fell into mutism again. I just, just couldn't bring myself. Then her friend Baldwin steps in. And finally, after about five days, James Baldwin came to my house. Bam-a-lam-a-lam on the door. Open this door. I'll call the police. So I opened the door, and he came in. He saw I was really unkempt, and my house was a mess, and I've always loved a pretty house. He said, go take a shower put some clothes on, I'm taking you somewhere.
5: He took her to a dinner party at the home of cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer and his then-wife, Judy.
6: And Baldwin asked me, tell a little bit about your grandma. Tell a little bit about Stamps, Arkansas. So I started by saying, in Arkansas, racism was so prevalent that black people couldn't even eat vanilla ice cream. (laughs) And so it made everybody laugh. And they asked me to tell a story,
5: tell another. The next day, Judy Pfeiffer calls her friend, and editor at Random House, Robert Loomis. And she tells Loomis that Angelo is a gripping storyteller. Many years later, in a 1986 interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, Angelo recalls that conversation she had with Loomis.
6: He phoned me a number of times, and I said, No, Robert Loomis. I said, No, I'm not. I'm not interested. Until he said to me, Well... Ms. Angelo, I guess it's just as well that you don't attempt this book because to write autobiography as literature is almost impossible. So I thought, oh, (laughs) well, in that case, I'd better try.
5: And try she did. In Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where she lived, she would rent a room at the Brookstown Inn Hotel. Her only niece and archivist, Rosa Johnson, took me there.
4: We are at the historic Brookstown Inn. It's a hotel here in Winston-Salem where Dr. Angelo would come to do her writings. And here we are.
5: Johnson says her aunt would rent a room for the entire time she was writing. She was an early riser.
4: So she'd probably be down here like at 6 o'clock in the morning, maybe till afternoon, and come
5: home and have lunch. She had a ritual.
4: And when she'd check in here, she would have the staff take any paintings or drawings off the walls because she would have... Her thesaurus, her Bible, a bottle of sherry,
5: and a yellow pad. So with her Bible, her thesaurus, her bottle of sherry, and yellow pad, Angelo found her mind settling on her earliest memories.
6: When I was three and Bailey four, we had arrived in the musty little town wearing tags on our wrists which instructed, to whom it may concern, that we were Marguerite and Bailey Johnson, Jr., from Long Beach, California, en route to Stamps, Arkansas, in care of Mrs. Annie Henderson.
5: This is where life begins for Maya Angelou, born Marguerite Johnson. For the first several years of her life, she, along with her brother Bailey, are raised by her grandmother. That's Mrs. Annie Henderson and Uncle Willie. Mrs. Henderson owns the only store in the black section of town. Joanne Gabin runs the Furious Flower Poetry Center at James Madison University. She also teaches Angelo's work in her English class. And so when she takes us to Stamps,
7: Arkansas, we can see the fear that Uncle uh, Willie has to go through, uh, has to hide in in a vegetable bin to avoid the Ku Klux Klan. From the
6: side of the store, Bailey and I heard him say to Mama, Annie... Tell Willie he better lay low tonight. A crazy nigger messed with a white lady today. Some of the boys will be coming over here later. Even after the slow drag of years, I remember the sense of fear, which filled my mouth with hot, dry air and made my body light.
7: She knew early on that because of racism,
5: black people were hated. She briefly leaves her life in stamps when her father shows up and takes her and Bailey to live with their mother in St. Louis. Marguerite was almost eight years old, and it is here that she's raped by her mother's boyfriend. The man is arrested, put on trial, and found guilty. And The day after the trial, he was killed, possibly by her uncles. This is the first time Angelo goes mute.
6: Just my breath carrying my words out might poison people, and they'd curl up and die like the black, fat slugs that only pretended. I had to stop talking.
5: After five years of not speaking, reading is what eventually helped the writer speak again. Among the authors she read was Paul Lawrence Dunbar. His poem, Sympathy, would inspire the title for I Know Why the cage Bird Sings that she would write decades later.
1: I would like to read the Dunbar poem, if I may.
5: Professor Emeritus from the College of William and Mary, Joanne Braxton.
1: I know what the caged bird feels, alas, when the sun is bright on the upland slopes.
5: Braxton wrote about Angela's autobiography and Black women writing autobiography, a tradition within a tradition.
1: She identified with that caged bird with this tremendous impulse to fly, to be free of that cage. And... While there were many ways in which she could not escape the immediate oppressions of her environment, she could test them through imaginary flights of literature.
5: I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings was released in 1969. Prior to 1970, sexism played a role in who was allowed to tell the story of being Black in America. Selwyn Kajo, professor of Africana studies at Wellesley College.
6: If you look at all the major figures, be it Frederick Douglass, be it, uh, Washington, women voices are silent. So you don't hear the women. They were just the wives or the helpmates, but they're they're never painted or printed or published or articulated.
5: Furious Flower Executive Director Joanne Gabin. There were very few
7: autobiographical pieces that I knew of by black women. And so Maya Angelou's was among the first.
5: The power of Angelou's story is that she is a black woman. But the early black woman tradition really comes into being
6: in the nineteen seventy. Now, significantly enough, in 1970, a number of works come out that give us a sense of women voices. For example, you have Toni Morrison's The Blue's Eye, 1970. You have Maya Angelou. I know why the cage bird sings. We have Lewis Mary Waters, uh in terms of Daddy was a numbers runner, 1970. You have Alice Walker, the third life of Grange, uh, Grange Cooplin. And of course, it ended, of course, in that very same year with Michelle Wallace's very powerful work, um, Black, Macho, and the Myth of the Superwoman.
5: Angelo's book demonstrates all the forces that black women still grapple with and what some call intersectionality today. Kimberly Crenshaw formed the theory to describe how our overlapping social identities relate to structures of racism and oppression.
1: She's already talking about intersectionality. We just didn't have the terminology that Kimberly Crenshaw most brilliantly brought forth after the fact. But she had illustrated intersectionality without calling it that. She called it a tripartite crossfire
6: the black female is assaulted in her tender years by all those common forces of nature at the same time that she is caught in the tripartite crossfire of masculine prejudice white illogical hate and black lack of power
1: which if you think about it is a little bit more charged than intersectionality which sounds more neutral by comparison.
5: You cannot talk about Angelo without talking about her influence or relationship to other Black women writers.
1: You could not
6: have a color purple without A cage Bird Sings. It opens up a
5: space. The Color Purple by Alice Walker came in 1982, 13 years after I Know Why The Cage Bird Sings. Angelo's book shows her struggles with race and class. As a teenager, she works as a maid alongside Miss Glory, their employer, Mrs. in one day decides to call Angelo, who was Margaret to her, Mary, because a friend said her name was too long. Marguerite was furious. Reverend Serena's Churn, the senior pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Angelo was a member for decades.
8: If you visited Dr. Angelo in her home, surely she had, you know, the the home staff, but she she treated them with the utmost respect and respect you two when she would introduce them this is mr so and so this is miss so mrs so and so it wasn't you know you
4: know jd whatever no no she would insist that whoever came across her door and respect everybody in that house yes it's my housekeeper, but that's miss thomas that's not married to you and i've seen times when she had people to leave because they didn't give the due respect to the women in the household.
5: Angelo did not take matters of respect lightly. Not long ago, a tweet resurfaced a 90s video of a teenage girl addressing the author.
4: I wanted
6: to ask Maya her views on interracial relationships. Oh, thank you. And first, I'm Miss Angelo.
4: Miss Angelo. Yes,
6: ma'am. I'm not Maya. I'm 62 years old. (laughs) I have lived so long and tried so hard that a young woman like you or any other has no, you have no license to come up to me and call me by my first name.
5: For some, the debate was not about what she said, rather.
6: I am never here for any black person scolding another black person around white folks. I am never here for that.
5: That's from King of Reeds on YouTube.
6: I'm tired of respectability politics. I am tired of this notion that just because someone has status Class, I have to address them as because.
5: For others, it was more a matter of respect, something Braxton says Angelo tried to achieve through her writing. So in the tradition of the
1: slave foremothers and the women missionaries and uh, ministers who wrote autobiographies before her, she is negotiating for respect. Not merely for herself, for herself, yes, but also for others like her that they might be recognized both as fully
5: human and also as representing a spark of the divine. You also cannot talk about Angelo in only literary terms.
8: If you just see the the great actress that she was, Uh, the great dancer that she was, the great uh, musician that she was. You miss her if you don't realize that this is a woman of tremendous faith and tremendous dependence on God.
5: I visited Reverend Churn in his office one Sunday after his church service. She came
8: to see me one day. Well, it was summer. We had our summer camp. And I I knew her car had arrived. And she never showed. I finally went downstairs, found her, surrounded by kids, rapping. You know, Dr. Angelo could, uh, you know, people tried to. Dr. Angelo could rap.
5: She had those kids enthralled. The album she recorded way back before her writing career in 1957 is one of the many reasons Angelo is sometimes dubbed the godmother of hip hop.
9: She was speaking the times, the struggle, to a beat on Miss Calypso in 1957. Just drums and her voice on beat. I don't know anyone who came before her, at least within the recorded era of music.
5: That is music producer Sean Rivera.
9: I'm sure that our ancestors uh, kept history by putting words in stories to music because we couldn't write it down. But as far as what we know as hip-hop today, Maya Angelou was the pioneer.
5: Rivera discovered Angela's book in 2007. It was life-changing and inspired Cagebird Songs, an album he worked with Angelou on for seven years. It was released in November 2014, six months after her death. The songs are from her poems, some of which are based on experiences from the book.
9: She talks about, uh, you know, uh, there's a long-legged girl in San Francisco by the Golden Gate, Uh, She said she'd give me all I wanted, but I just couldn't wait, right? And it made me laugh because for someone who seemed to be so presidential and prim and proper, uh, I didn't realize how she came from the same kind of streets I was raised in and then some before they were what they are. She became this, uh, I could connect with her through the book uh, in a way that uh, the poetry uh, only alluded to.
6: There's a long-legged girl in San Francisco by the Golden Gate She said she'd give me all I wanted But I just couldn't wait I started to picking them up and laying them down Picking them up and laying them down, picking
5: them up and laying
6: them down, getting to the next town. Baby to picking, picking them up, laying them down, picking them up, laying them down, picking them
5: up and laying them down. And getting the album has a cult-like following.
9: People are still discovering it, and that's one of those things when, you, when you're as timeless as Dr. Angelo, there's no rush. When you, I found her book almost 40 years after it was written, and it still changed the trajectory of my life to this day. So 40 years from now, you know, my great grandkids uh, will be just as inspired by it.
5: You've heard of Band Book Week. It started with one book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings.
3: There was uh, a challenge to her book in 1982 that came to the attention of uh, a small group of publishers, booksellers and librarians um, that were working on um uh, a display for what's turned into BookCon
5: today. Deborah Caldwell Stone is the interim director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association.
3: It was the idea that her book was being banned. Uh, a na- you know a nominee from multiple awards, uh, an actual award-winning book, with a great work of literature, was being removed from the schools based on the objections to the you know. Uh, use of language and sexual situations that were challenging but relevant and important to the book that really uh, spurred uh, these individuals to bring a focus to book censorship.
5: In 1990, years after the office was inspired to work on banned books, they started keeping a yearly list of the top books banned. I Know Why the cagebird Bird Sings has made the list hundreds of times.
3: What's cited most often in the listed challenges is uh, profanity, uh, explicit sexual activity, uh, or the description of explicit sexual activity, um, uh, and uh, Sometimes uh, very vague references to the book not representing, quote, traditional values, unquote.
5: Caldwell Stone says there will always be challenges to I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings because it itself is a challenge to the status quo.
3: It it forces individuals to confront their preconceptions of culture, of race, um, of class, um, and people find that profoundly disorienting and uncomfortable. And I think as long as literature is does that, and in fact, isn't that the task of literature to challenge us, to cause us to question ourselves and our beliefs?
5: Joanne Gavin.
3: my
7: Angelou was right on target when she said, this has to be not only recognized, but young people have to read about this. Not only did she give us that scene, uh, in terms of the rape, but she also talked about the very hard issues of of racism, of of racial violence, and so she tells us these stories
5: that are sometimes hard to hear, but must be heard. Earlier in her life, Angela struggled to find her voice, sometimes literally, when she did not speak. In finding it and writing about it, she helped others find theirs.
9: This book was the closest thing for me to feeling understood by someone who had walked a path um, and emerged successfully from a childhood of abuse.
1: I identified with her as a young Black girl, the young Black girl who is still alive and inside me, who experienced terrible things that I don't want to talk about. She became... A champion for me,
5: for me too. During my interview with Braxton, she asked me why I wanted to produce this story in particular. I did not encounter it until college, and it changed it changed my it changed my life in 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 ways that I didn't I didn't even know how to articulate. So, yeah, I get emotional. Good <laughs> talking to Braxton took me back to reading the book as a college student in the nineties. I saw myself for the first time in the words. My story of rape at a young age, racism and identity was not unique, but it was also not normal. And I felt validation. Angelo's niece.
4: There's family um, dynamics that we as a people don't often talk about, like mental health issues or incest and rape that goes on in the family. Um, And so by auntie Writing about those things, it opened the door for us to realize and acknowledge our pain.
5: This is perhaps the greatest lasting impact of the book. Joanne Braxton.
1: I think it's critically important to recognize that her text offers itself as a counter-narrative to the American historical narrative that remains his story by bringing her black and female voice forward to say in the words of Langston Hughes, I too sing America.
6: The fact that the adult American Negro female emerges a formidable character is often met with amazement, distaste, and even belligerence. It is seldom accepted as an inevitable outcome of the struggle won by survivors and deserves respect, if not enthusiastic, acceptance. I'm the best that ever done it. How, how. That's my title, and I want it. Pow, pow. I ain't lying, I'm the
0: best. Pow. pow. Maya Angel died in 2014. She was 86. Sonia Green produced our story. She is based in Macon, Georgia, where she's a reporter at Mercer University's Center for Collaborative Journalism. Pedro Rafael Rosado was the engineer. All of Studio 360's American Icons are made possible by grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and you can find dozens more of our American Icons stories like that and our long documentaries at studio360.org. you want to
6: read maybe it's your mom and me.
2: Coming up next, I remember being very traumatized by the photo shoots. Because people were putting me in topless and waiters and being like, yeah, show the sex, do the sex, you're the sex girl.
0: How Liz Phair's sexually frank lyrics were so provocative and misunderstood.
2: That was not what I thought I was doing at all. You know, I knew I was being shocking, but so were a lot of indie rock bands at that time. This just was coming from a woman and kind of a goody-goody woman. And it freaked everybody out.
0: That's coming up on Studio 360.
6: Studio 360.
2: Around the time of the 2016 election, I was sort of experiencing in real time this sort of horror of what I saw as, you know, dirty dealings or corruption
0: That's the singer-songwriter Liz Fair, and she says that disconcerting time, the moral and cultural confusion and ugliness she saw,
2: drove her to reflect on the notion of character, including her own. If character is so important, which it became to me after I watched what was going on in politics, what does that mean to establish a character? How do we become who we are? I think it's the stuff, it's the slings and arrows we take on a daily basis that we don't even barely acknowledge to ourselves that can shape us in fundamental ways for years to come.
0: 25 years earlier, very young Liz Fair had begun tape recording some songs under the name Girly Sound, producing homemade cassettes.
3: I woke up alone.
0: Those tapes got her a deal with Matador Records, a hot new label that put out her debut album Exile in Guyville in 1993. Among other things, Guyville was a savage critique of the male-dominated music scene in her hipster Chicago neighborhood, Wicker Park. The album was confrontational, sexually explicit, and became an indie rock icon. Since then, she's only released five more albums. But since that recent epiphany around the presidential election, she's moved into a second creative lane, chronicling profound moments that shaped her character in a memoir she's just published, her first book, called Horror Stories.
2: When I felt all those artists dying around 2016, people that had been formative for me in terms of influences. Bowie and Prince. And it just it felt like the hits kept coming, like I was losing the star firmament that Mm -hmm. had meant something to me that I just took for granted as part of the world. And my manager really said to me, he's like, are you making the album that you would want to leave behind if it were your last? You know, like, are you doing work up to that level? And I really didn't feel like I was. And it was a challenge. So the book became that challenge. Like, if this is my last artifact, I want you to know how I felt about life and what was important to me and what mattered and stuck with me
0: well and and of course, once one gets to be say 50, uh, one, one does <laughs> right. that, one does that more, but it's but it's yes. it, it's it's the thing you know people who are twenty five should ask themselves that
2: you know, but they never will they're having too much fun, and I'm happy they're having so much fun. horror stories
0: isn't a conventional history about the makings of albums and the ups and downs of stardom. It's this set of distinct episodes from throughout your life, these short, rich narratives depicting meaningful moments, climbing a tree at your grandparents' house, uh, this break-in at your college apartment, an encounter with a Trader Joe's employee. So how did you decide on this form, this approach?
2: Well, I think that because I'm a songwriter, I tend to think in discrete chunks and so as I was writing prose, which was a much different experience than the way I would normally write lyrics, there's a world building that a three-minute song doesn't really—you can hint at it, but you can't really flesh things out. And with prose, I think I just naturally gravitated toward like almost like a stretched song style. Huh. So I kind of saw them as contained— Moments. So this
0: sort of becomes an album that you wrote down, and it's a yes. Yeah, in yeah. my
2: mind, it's very much an album yeah. of long form writing. It occurs to me
0: that the stories, the way they draw meaning from these simple, small moments, as opposed to big, dramatic, you know, that time I met Elvis moments or anything, I was reminded of the of the song Stratford on Guy from uh, Guyville, hmm. uh, which is this beautiful song about flying home to Chicago and about the airplane and the flight attendant. Mm -hmm. Was that a memoir? Was that a bit of autobiography, that song, for instance?
2: That was. That absolutely was. I had that exact experience while I was flying in and wrote a song about it. I was flying into Chicago at night watching I mean, that's the beauty of being an artist is that you can capture your memories and preserve them. You can polish them and burnish them until they kind of exist on their own, sort of outside of you. That
0: song had a fictional version of itself
2: on your earlier tapes where the (laughs) plane crashes, right? Yeah. And it's like, that was an earlier iteration of that song. And I wrote it about this kind of crazy notion of being on a plane that was imminently going to crash and sort of terrifying your fellow passengers. Like, oh, you better get ready because this is going down. And I don't know what made me write that stuff. The girly sound material was so fanciful. It was so whimsical in a weird way and dark. It's a weird aesthetic I have. It's a high-contrast aesthetic. You can the plane's gonna crash five minutes. Well, it's funny
0: that you say that. Not that it never existed before, but this combination of whimsical and dark seems to be a very alternative rock <laughs> Gen X sort of thing, you know?
2: You know what? I never thought about that, but I think you're absolutely right. I think that's the zeitgeist I grew up in, and that definitely has taken root and colored my artistic output. You're absolutely right. That is like an indie rock Gen X thing. (laughs) Good. Thank you for confirming that.
0: So do you ever like, wow, I wrote this when I was 21 or 22 or whatever. Are you still able to connect with the you that wrote that song as an adult, as a 50-year-old?
2: I mean, I I can't connect with, and I do envy that sense of freedom where – you just had nothing to lose. Mm. You could just like throw anything against the wall. You just had no, sh- like, I miss that sort of confidence. Like, you don't know all the things that could go wrong. You don't know what you're incurring upon yourself with every action. Whereas when you're my age now, you kind of do know how things work out. You're like, well, I don't know how this story is going to turn out. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, you don't have any of that when you're young. And I miss that. But I also, I'm, I am impressed that I can see why this was my career because the songwriting chops themselves in some of the early work. It's hit and miss. Believe me, it's really strongly <laughs> hit and miss. I never thought anyone was going to hear those tapes. But there's good songwriting in there, songwriting that I don't think I can recreate now. So some part of me was smarter than I am now. Some part of me had a better grasp on right making great music. Or
0: or, or again, as you're suggesting, music that only a 23 year old can make.
2: Can make, yeah.
0: So you don't ever feel like, oh, I should go back and change that line or revise this there?
2: Oh God, I would, I mean, yeah, I would trash whole songs. I would like, if I could <laughs> I think I said that on stage in Australia. Like, be careful what you scribble in your journal because you might just have to be performing it at 52. You know, like, be careful what you do.
0: Before you were Liz Fair, the musician, you were Liz Fair, the uh, visual artist. Mm -hmm. What kind of art were you making? Well,
2: (laughs) my father was an infectious disease specialist, and as soon as AIDS, sort of broke in the 80s, he, he was called upon to spearhead and form a protocol for these patients that were coming in that were dying of these terrible illnesses. So I sort of heard over the dinner table, all this stuff about healthy people suddenly contracting terrible illnesses, and they couldn't do anything for them. And I became focused on this idea of where is the self? We tend to think of ourselves as our physical, corporeal selves. But if you're battling disease or something is wrong with your physical self, where do you go? Like, where do you retreat into and what is the essential you? So I started doing these big charcoal drawings. I think I started with this little kid who had leprosy. And you saw the progression of the leprosy. He went from being like a sporty, soccer-playing little kid. Then he was overcome by the skin infection and he was disappearing and it was it's very heavy sorry yeah
0: why did you leave it for for this career in music i
2: accidentally got paid for music i wasn't gonna do music i was still making art in wicker park that's what i did that's how i paid my rent i would sell a drawing or a painting huh like to friends and then all of a sudden you know i was making this record and I got a check in the mail and everyone loved the music and it literally was it was like that. And I remember calling my dad saying like, hey, you can take me off the health insurance. I mean, that was a big deal to me. So it just kind of it took over.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Liz Fair on Studio 360. I never said nothing. I never said nothing. Studio 360. I'm back now to continue my conversation with Liz Fair whose debut album Exile in Guyville was released in 1993. It immediately became a sensation in the rock world, the indie rock world. It won the Village Voices annual poll of music critics as the best album of the year beating out Nirvana's In Utero. All this for a young woman who'd just been recording cassettes in her bedroom and had rarely played any shows in public.
2: He's just Something attractive to save. They say he rode in on the back of a pickup. Anyone leave town, do you remember
7: his name?
0: So you you put out this record and it does well and you're famous. You were 26, I guess? 25. 25. Were, were you prepared for that, more or less? <laughs> did you deal with it as well no, as a 25 year old? No.
2: I did not deal with it well. <laughs> no? I. No, I, di- I didn't expect I, – I really wanted to make an impression in my neighborhood. I wanted to impress the people that I went out drinking with or huh. went and saw play and perform. What happened was, you know, my ambition for the neighborhood became a national platform. And that was not something – I I remember being very traumatized by the photo shoots because, you know, I had some – Risqué lyrics, you know, I had some sexually frank lyrics in a couple songs. What that translated to in in terms of a photo shoot, like people were putting me in topless and waiters and being like, yeah, show the sex, do the sex, you're yeah. the sex girl. And that was not what I thought I was doing at all. You know, I knew I was being shocking, but so were a lot of indie rock bands at that time. This just was coming from a woman and kind of a goody-goody woman and it freaked everybody out. I ask. But what I intended to do was show that I was unafraid. A girly sound, which was what I was doing on cassettes, was a political project that I did at Oberlin. I would speed up the tape so my voice sounded even girlier. And I was like, if I say really shocking, horrifying things in a really girly voice, you know, the young female voice arguably has the least authority in society. And, you know, would they hear me if I was doing a little sing song but i was saying really i can't say it on uh-huh. the air right now but you know would they even hear it and that was sort of what that was born from this idea this oberlin political right. feminist idea of like say really shocking things in a little girl voice and right. what does that do what right. clashes that what
0: if you hadn't become liz fair in 1993 and and uh, <laughs> what, what what do you think would have happened
2: Thank you for saying it that way because that's how it feels when I have to call on a telephone call and I have to say my name. I (laughs) never know how to say my own name, but I feel like I ought to be saying it's Liz Fair. (laughs) You know, like that's how it feels. Um, I think I would have been either like I might have run a gallery or something. I like the idea of getting dressed in something like architectural and going to Uh work and glowering at you over my cigarette, being mean and scary. Yeah. I mean, I've now taken on this life where I expose myself for a living and sort of put it all out there to get liked or hated, and I do something that I'm really much too shy to do, which is get on stage and perform in front of a band. I mean, if you had known me as a girl, Uh none of that would Uh have been what you would have expected for me at all. And so in a weird way, I do have this nostalgia for the, the road not taken, but... Don't we all? Like, everybody does. And would I have been happier there? Probably not.
0: There is this 90s nostalgia uptick lately. You know, shows being rebooted, fashion being, you know, reintroduced, all that.
2: Are you nostalgic for the 1990s? My take on that, there's always been nostalgia because people are always looking for inspiration, so they look backwards as well as forwards. So there's always been that nostalgia for each era. But I think what's going on with the 90s revival, because it seems a little bit more, it's sticking longer and it's a little bit more of a deeper feeling, this really want to return to the 90s. I think it's the last time before the internet. I think it's the last time that we weren't all... Isolated and connected in this isolated way in our own homes. We're connected, but we're not really connecting. It was the last time that like people had to walk to the record store mm-hmm. to pick up something, or go to the show and stand there and meet people and make friends that way. Like it was the last period before we became hooked up to the you wild, know, Tyr- tyrannized, that yeah. tyrannized by the robots, tyrannized by the by the artificial overlord. You yeah. Know? I think that's what it is.
0: So, at what point in this career of yours that began when you were 26 did you say, oh, okay, I like this, I'm good at it, I can go on stage and do this?
2: Oh my God, oh, only recently. <clears throat> Really, like I had so much angst about my job. Like, why did this happen to me? And I'm not good at it. And why am I doing this? And I'll never get back to the life that I thought I was going to live. And then I had my son. And as you're teaching a child about life, like, here is a sidewalk, you step up to get on it. You know what I mean? Like, little things mm-hmm. because the focus is off the self sure. when you become a parent. Sure. I'm gonna And I I took a different perspective and I thought, your job is to go on stage and sing and people clap because they're happy? Like, that is not a bad job. And so kind of around Lilith Fair and that whole pop period was when I really kind of embraced it. I thought, this is an excellent job.
0: It's interesting you say it was during this change to popier music that you became comfortable because... Seems like it might have been a, a low moment. Um, you put out your fourth album in 2003, the first one for a big label, and it had this much more mainstream sound.
2: Get a load of me, get a load of you Walking down the street and I hardly know you. know you It's just like we were meant to be
0: And a lot of your fans who so strongly identified with your original alt-indie mid-twenties self felt betrayed by this poppy record and and critics derided you as some kind of sellout. Is that a wound that still hurts?
2: It doesn't really. And even at the time it did it did suck to hear like interviewer after interviewer kind of have to go through a therapy session with me because they were personally angry and I didn't relate. I didn't understand why. It took a long time for me to understand why they were so angry because to me it was just music and I was in a different part of my life. It would have been it would have felt disingenuous to try to pretend I was still a young indie rocker like on the streets, like hustling. It that would have been not true to what I was doing, right, but right. I think to them the betrayal had to do with a larger cultural shift, mm-hmm. where, like we we're just talking about the '90s, like, alternative did mean something, and I think they they had a much more political investment in it than I did.
0: It totally makes sense. It was that this alternative era had ended, and now you know everybody sold out. Selling out no longer meant anything. It was it was probably yeah you, you became a scapegoat for what was happening in the culture
2: I didn't shoot to make a pop record what happened was Matador had sold us to Capitol and so all of a sudden I was left on a major label to sink or swim and so I swam right I didn't hate it I learned a ton I learned how to perform because they put me on these radio shows and on these big bills and I just had to learn to do a lot of stuff that I never would have had the opportunity to do so I'm kind of grateful I'm so
3: Spending every weekend so far gone Heat wave nothing
6: to do
0: That, as you know, is a song released last year by the performer known as Snail Mail. So Exile in Guyville has become this, this archetype and template for a wave of young women making music. Her... Uh, soccer Mommy, Frankie Cosmos, others. Lindsey Jordan, a.k.a. Snail Mail, even used to play in a Liz Fair cover band, I read. So when and how did you become aware of, of all these Liz Fair acolytes?
2: I found my goddaughters, as I like to call them, uh-huh. on social media. I just started connecting with people on Twitter. And I would just follow all these young female artists because I was interested There seemed to be so many of them, and they all seemed so fearlessly unique. And I remember being that age and feeling like I had to kind of look like the guys and like the same things that the guys liked or whatever it was. And this felt like all these butterflies just springing up, like each one was doing their own thing, and they had a vision for who they wanted to present themselves as. And it seemed to carry through in their talent and their songwriting. So I was just mesmerized Mm -hmm. by this wide field of young women doing their thing so i wanted to kind of find out about them and interact with them and then they were all very complimentary to me seeing me as someone who had you know done what they were doing and and helped to make it easier for them to do what they were doing and it just was like this mutual clasping of hands across a generation and i really i felt like suddenly Like as if I had spoken a language that very few people spoke. And then now in the world, a lot of people speak Mm. that language. Mm. And it just felt like a home that I'd never had when I was coming up. It's just very cool.
0: And you've toured with some of them, right?
2: I've toured with some of them and I see them out and it's just, it's a happy time. They might tell you a different story. (laughs) They might tell you how sexist the industry is and how awful it is. And they wouldn't be wrong. It's just that it was worse and it's better now. So I'm just enjoying the moment of being able to look at all these young women doing their thing and just be happy and just feel like the world is more like what I wished it always were.
0: Liz Fair, thank you so much for doing this.
2: Thank you so much for having me and for your thoughtful questions.
0: Liz Fair's memoir, Horror Stories, is just out. She also told me that she's in the middle of recording a new album, which will be her first in nine years. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team is
2: Jocelyn Gonzalez
0: Andrew Adam Newman,
2: Sandra Lopez-Monsalve
0: Evan Chung
2: Lauren Hansen
0: Sam Kim
2: Zoe Saunders
0: Tommy Bazarian
2: Morgan Flannery
0: And I'm Kurt Anderson
2: It did suck to hear like interviewer after interviewer kind of have to go through a therapy session with me because they were personally angry Thanks very much for listening
9: R.I. Public Radio International.
0: Next time on Studio 360. 44 years later, moviegoers are still throwing rice and doing the pelvic thrust.
9: Rocky Horror is about the sexual revolution in America and how insane the country
0: went. Our upcoming American icon, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Next time on Studio 360.